start just a couple minutes early now it looks like it's five minutes early that's probably a disaster of magnitudinal proportions with which i may not be able to recover intellectually spiritually psychologically or psychically either so how is everybody i hope you had a good week happy father's day to all you fathers out there may you live long and prosper nanu nanu we get to do the historic meld of divine and humanity tonight discussing the mysteries yeah baby <laughs> hey look it sounded good right okay let's see who is here john rosbarski good to see you yes you made it on time or else i did mosia yeah this is going to be a fun one thank you thank you doug vincent welcome my brother and Peter Higgs, how are you doing? Good morning to you. So, well, you're still welcome here, John Rosbarski. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what religion you belong to. We don't give a flying flip. It's not about what religion you are. It's about using our minds to discuss religion, right? And we have a good time here. We talk about... Uh, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of angles. It's a great chat group we've got here. I love my audience. So, John, I think you'll enjoy yourself here. I do believe. Yeah, it's a mystery, all this stuff. Boy, what a perfect word to discuss. I'm going to be talking about that tonight. The mystery. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give folks a couple of moments to saunter on in. Uh yeah, the mystery is a real interesting situation because if we knew what it was all about, then it wouldn't be a mystery. And I think three-fourths of the fun is figuring out the mystery and never being able to 100% solve it so it keeps us clicking toward it. Yeah, I mean, hey, that's my theory. It sounds good in my humble opinion, and I do emphasize opinion <laughs> on that. So, Dan Vogel, good to see you, man. Very good to see you. 
everyone's looking good and looking happy. Yeah. We're going to have fun tonight, I do believe. I have a boat load of material for you. I sincerely do. Patty Cake, how are you, darling? Welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Firesides. Yeah. Uh, tonight, I'm not kidding. I have a boatload of information. I could very well carry this past the hour and a half, possibly even past two hours. But I want to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uncork it, man, and I'm going to give it to you in full glorious detail. Uh, and then that's only, oh, sorry, that's only full glorious detail of one aspect of it. There's only about a hundred million, yeah, baby, hundred million of them aspects of all of this fun conglomeration of stuff. And that's what makes this so much fun is because we are exploring it all. Yeah. Yes, he did, John. Absolutely. We'll be discussing some of that tonight. Joseph Smith creating myths. Fundamentally so. You betcha. So uh, it's just about, I've got about a minute and a half left before I officially start letting the crowds come in. Hey, yeah, there's a few of you here. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome, Sabbath evening, now's the day we come to hear BYP. Boy, it's a good thing I didn't sing for a living. Here's to song. Music's a fantastic subject, though, isn't it? Fun to do, fun to listen to, and fun to create. I create mine on my garage band. That song you heard at the beginning was one that I put together, kind of fun. So, okay, six o'clock, looks like the auditorium is overstuffed with empty seats, so it's a perfect time to be <laughs> All right. Oh, let's see. Let's get started tonight. Uh, Father's Day, kind of an odd time to do a, uh, a live session, but I do try to do it every Sunday night, no matter what. Even if it ends up being Christmas night, I will do a Sunday fireside with all of you wonderful people. So, yes, pop some popcorn. You're in for some entertainment, John. Absolutely. Feel free to snack while I sacrifice my taste buds to lecturing for just a few hours. <laughs> the subject tonight is really, truly one of my favorite subjects. Um I mean, it's just, I have no idea why it attracts me so well, but it does. And that is, it's kind of a conglomeration. It's a coagulation of mythology and the mysteries and various groups who have attempted to make sense of the mysteries and the mythology through their rituals, their repeated actions, their celebrations together in group form of trying to figure out just what in the heck is this universe all about and what are we doing here? That's the mystery, man. That's the one we all want to solve and none of us can, but we have some fantastic attempts to do so. 
So, yes, I am a rocker too. Absolutely. Elisa, good to see you. Glad you made it. Joe? Yes. Uh, I'm Well, not Metaxas as such, but I am. It's a subject close to that. Yes. We're going to deal more with uh, Joseph Smith Freemasonry, the mysteries and mythology. And what I want to do is I want to start with a, a fundamental, whoa, I'm getting ahead of myself. I have a couple of announcements to make. Wow, that was close. I almost blew this podcast already. Okay, listen up, people. Listen up, people. Ding, 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 ding. You got to hit the attention bell. Hey, you know what? I got to hang up a bell or a horn or something. Blow a horn to make an announcement or whatever. Yeah, only I can get away with this kind of stupidity. So nobody else try to imitate it, please. Okay, I do have three brief, quick announcements. There is a gentleman that I have discovered that I am finding a terrific enjoyment in listening to. And it is not about politics. He is a geopolitical strategist. And and probably some of you, if not the majority of you, already know about this guy. I'm just discovering him. And I am finding him absolutely fascinating to listen to. He's on YouTube. There's a lot of videos that you can watch of his. I eventually will get all of his books and read those, not right at the moment, but... His name is Peter Zihon, P-E-T-E-R, Peter, as in the New Testament gent. And his last name is Zihon, Z-E-I-H-A-N. The recent YouTube that I watched, he has an interview with a gentleman named Steve Carr, C-A-R-R. That is really interesting. His his uh, YouTube energy at the end of the world seminar is well worth listening to. I have to admit, I learn a lot of stuff from this guy. Very fun and interesting to listen to. So I would recommend him. Now, my second announcement calls for your serious and noble undivided attention here and now. Hey, you, I'm talking to you. (laughs) I have some great news. Seriously, there have been many of us waiting well over a decade for this new book, and I know the authors, and it's going to be the best read on this subject, and it is available for pre-order right now, and you really want to go pre-order this book. The book is by Joe Steve Swick, Nick Litersky, and Cheryl Bruno. It is called Method Infinite. It is about Mormonism and Freemasonry. Joe Steve Swick and Nick Litersky are phenomenal Freemasons. Excellent authors. I know them personally. They are brilliant men. Cheryl is a -a one-of-a-kind woman. She is spectacular, over-the-top, fabulous, very knowledgeable in this subject. Their book is available for pre-order on Greg Coford Books Online. 
just Google Greg Coford Books and Method Infinite, and it'll take you right to the site. You do want to pre-order this book. It's coming out August 9th this year. So this is exciting times. We have, I talked to Joe a few years back at Sunstone, and when he made a presentation and I asked him, as well as the whole class, which was pretty much standing room only to listen to him talk, uh, we asked him, when is your book coming out? And he said, soon, soon, it's coming out soon. Well, several years down the road, it is here and it is exciting. So go pre-order that book. If you don't and you find out that it's been sold out the first day, don't come crying to me. I told you here first, go get your copy now. Very ex 581 whopping pages. Excellent, excellent text. I've talked to Joe many, many, many dozens of hours over the telephone on various subjects that his book was dealing with. I discussed all kinds of things with him, and it's going to be a one-of-a-kind shedding phenomenal new light on this subject. You do not want to miss this. Mike Langley, welcome. Dean Schwank, welcome back. Tim Rathbone, how are you doing, my man? Good to see all of you. And finally, a the last announcement before you get to listen to me blither on and on and on tonight with a truly fabulous subject is this Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Mountain Time in the United States, I'm going to be on the Gnostic Informant YouTube channel. We are doing another round with the Backyard Professor. The Gnostic Informant is a well-known YouTuber who loves to discuss mythology and science and history and religion and philosophy. And he is a young, very bright man, and he's a lot of fun to talk with. We will be talking about whatever subject we choose to. I'm going to keep it from you so that you'll come and watch it. So I'm very excited to be back on his show. He has graciously invited me back, and I am looking forward to that. Tuesday night, 6 o'clock, Mountain Time. Okay, I do believe we are all here. It looks like a pretty good crowd. Let's get started on my subject. Let me jump right into this. Okay, we have to understand something very, very interesting. There is a, a basic mode that we humans fall into across the globe and through all time. And it is because of the nature of our cosmos that we live in right now do giving our response to the cosmos. So it's not that we, in our modern arrogance, have the right to call the ancient peoples or other peoples other than us primitives and uneducated, etc. 
we all have this visceral reaction, how we respond to the cosmos has been discussed for thousands of years, either word of mouth or through writing since the printing press. I want to read a basic, common, psychological, religious background that mankind, no matter which continent you live on, mankind has done. I get this information out of Mercedes Iliada, the sacred and profane, one of the great mythologists of the world, and his take on this is really interesting, and it's perfect background for what the Freemasons have been doing and want to accomplish, and for what Joseph Smith did with the Mormon endowment. This is the historic humanity contextual background. And we've all fallen under this spell. Here it is. Simple contemplation of the celestial vault already provokes a religious experience. The sky shows itself to be infinite transcendent from our point of view. It is preeminently the holy other than the little represented by man and his environment. Transcendence is revealed by simple awareness of infinite height. Most high. Well, this spontaneously becomes an attribute of divinity. The higher religions inaccessible to man the side real zones acquire the momentousness of the transcendent um, of absolute reality of eternity. There dwell the gods. There a few privileged mortals make their way by rites of ascent. There in the conception of certain religions mount the souls of the dead. The most high is a dimension inaccessible to man as man. It belongs to superhuman forces and beings. He who ascends by mounting the steps of the sanctuary or the ritual ladder that leads to the sky ceases to be a man. In one way or another, he shares in the divine condition. All this is not arrived at by a logical, rational operation. The transcendental category of height, of the superterrestrial, of the infinite, is revealed to the whole man, to his intelligence and his soul. It is a total awareness on man's part. Beholding the sky, he simultaneously discovers the divine incommensurability and his own situation in the cosmos. For the sky, by its own mode of being, reveals transcendence, force, eternity. It exists absolutely because 
It is high, infinite, eternal, powerful. And since the sky exists absolutely, many of the supreme gods or primitive people are called by names designating height, the celestial vault, meteorological phenomena, or simply owner of the sky, or sky dweller. The supreme divinity of the Maori is named Iho. Iho means elevated, high up. Uwaluwu, the supreme god of the Akposa Negroes, signifies what is on high, the upper regions. Among the Selk Nam of Tierra del Fuego, God is called dweller in the sky, or he who is in the sky. Notice this is across the world's cultures in both time and place. Puluga, the supreme being of the Andaman Islanders dwells in the sky. The thunder is his voice, wind his breath, the storm is the sign of his anger, for with his lightning he punishes those who break his commandments. The sky god of the Yoruba of the slave coast is named Olorun, literally the owner of the sky. The Samoyed worship Num, a god who dwells in the highest sky and whose name means sky. Among the Koryak, the supreme divinity is called the one on high, the master of the high, he who exists. The Ainu knew him as the divine chief of the sky, the sky god, the divine creator of the worlds, but also as Kamui, that is sky. This list can be easily extended. The Mongol name for the supreme god is Tengri, which means sky. The Chinese Tien means at once the sky and the god of the sky. The Sumerian term for divinity, Dingir, originally meant a celestial epiphany, clear, brilliant. The Babylonian Anu also expresses the idea of the sky. The Indo-European supreme god, Deus, denotes both the celestial epiphany and the sacred. Compare the Sanskrit Diu to shine or day. Dias, sky and day. Dias, the Indian god of heaven. Zeus and Jupiter, and I'm emphasizing Jupiter because we're going to talk a lot about him tonight, because Jupiter is related and tied into very intimately with Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. This is why I'm trying to give you this background. So Zeus and Jupiter still preserve in their names the memory of the sacredness of the sky. The Celtic Taranis, from Taran to Thunder, the Baltic 
Perkunas, lightning, and the Proto-Slavic Perun. And he says, compare the Polish Piorun for lightning are especially revealing for the later transformations of the sky gods into storm gods. And this is what we witness happening in the Old Testament with Yahweh as Israel came into contact with so many of the ancient Eastern peoples, Egyptians included. Min was their sky god. There's no question of naturalism here. The celestial god is not identified with the sky, for he is the same god who, creating the entire cosmos, created the sky as well. That is why he is called creator, all-powerful, lord, chief, father, and the like. The celestial god is a person, not a Uranian epiphany. But he lives in the sky and is manifested in meteorological phenomena, thunder, lightning, storms, meteors, rain, snow, etc. This means that certain privileged structures of the cosmos, the sky, the atmosphere, these constitute favorite epiphanies of the sky supreme being. He reveals his presence by what is specifically and peculiarly his. The majesty of the celestial immensity, the terror, the tremendum of the storm. That's on pages 121 or 120 and 121. Then I have this to conclude Iliada with, which introduces us right into Joseph Smith's Mormon endowment and his involvement with magic. Yet we must note that this is on page 128. Yet we must note that even when these celestial gods no longer dominate religious life, decide real religions. The Uranian symbolism, the myths and rites of ascent and the like, retain a preponderant place in the economy of the sacred. What is above the high continues to reveal the transcendent in every religious complex. Driven from the cult and replaced in mythologies by other themes in the religious life of the sky remains ever-present simply by virtue of its symbolism. And this celestial symbolism, in turn, infuses and supports a number of rites of ascent, climbing, uh, Ananda K. Kumaraswamy is a huge, was a huge Indian scholar of ancient mythology. And he talks a lot about in the Rig Veda and the Bhagavad Gita and all of the climbing rites of the shaman, as does Iliada in his book on shamanism. This is a very important theme of ascension here. 
It involves initiation, royalty, and so on. Of myths, we have the cosmic tree, the cosmic mountain, the chain of arrows connecting the earth with the heaven, and so on. Of legends, such as the magical flight of shamans, the symbolism of the center of the world, whose immense dissemination we have seen likewise illustrates the importance of celestial symbolism. For it is at a center that communication with the sky is affected, and the sky constitutes the paradigmatic image of transcendence. So these symbols have a connection and an interplay between heaven and earth, man and deity. It could be said that the very structure of the cosmos keeps memory of the celestial supreme being alive. It is as if the gods had created the world in such a way that it could not but reflect their existence. For no world is possible without verticality, up and down, height, ascent. And that dimension alone is enough to evoke transcendence. Driven from religious life in the strict sense, the celestial sacred remains active through symbolism. And this is so important to understand Joseph Smith's involvement with magic, as I'm going to demonstrate tonight. Very interesting how this all comes together. A religious symbol conveys its message, even if it is no longer consciously understood in every part. For a symbol speaks to the whole human being, and not only to his intelligence. That is a wonderful background of which I will now present some information that I think is worth pursuing in conjunction with, and it's so interesting, and the reason I want to push this uh, course that I'm taking right now in these videos, these live sessions, is because the modern church wants none of this. Look. Russell M. Nelson would excommunicate Joseph Smith, Jr. That is how far removed modern Mormonism is from Joseph Smith's worldview, experiences, understanding, knowledge, and spirituality. That's probably pretty shocking to say, but I think I can back that up, and I think you will see that tonight as well. Now, Carl Jung, in his book, Aeon, has a comment that I do want to say because we are going to put Jupiter and Joseph Smith together tonight, without question. On, the, on page 77 just a brief statement. Unlike Saturn, 
Jupiter is a beneficial star. Now, and he's using the mythology. We know it's not a star. We get that. Forget your modern science. We're dealing with symbolism now. Okay. So let's put a different hat on and quit worrying about trying to prove whether this is true or false. That has nothing to do with tonight. Tonight, we enter the realm of Joseph Smith in order to try to understand him. And we see that the modern Mormon movement has definitely changed Joseph Smith's vision, his goals, and his knowledge. In other words, has there been another apostasy? I'll let you decide. Jupiter is a beneficent star. In the Iranian view, Jupiter signifies life. Saturn, death. The conjunction of the two therefore signifies the union of extreme opposites. Very interesting how we begin to learn how symbolism rises. Yeah. In the year 7 BC, this famed conjunction with Jupiter and Saturn took place no less than three times in the sign of Pisces. And I will be sharing the significance of that kind of imagery with you as well. So I just wanted to bring that out as sort of a build-up, an elaboration of the magical background that we're going to discuss tonight with Joseph Smith. And make no mistake about it whatsoever, I don't give a flying flip what modern Mormons today want to believe or tell us. Joseph Smith loved, used, and lived within a magic kind of thinking. Of that, the historical record is crystal clear. Very interesting. And that's why I've got a lot to show you tonight. Now, in order to bring about this, now, and, and Freemasonry ties in with this. So, in order to bring this about, see, uh, I have to go back to uh, Michael Homer's magnificent, or not Michael Homer, I'm sorry. Um, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Reed Durham, I apologize. Yeah, Reed Durham. Is there no help for the widow's son? Now, last week I got uh, about two-thirds of the way through this fantastic speech to the Historical Association. And I want to finish it tonight. And the way it ties in uh, magic and legend and mythology and Mormonism is Exquisite. Really interesting. Oh, and I've already studying my notes and I lost the point to where okay here. See, I even I even show in my page. Start here. 
<laughs> that way I don't lose my way. See, that's the cool thing about reading stuff is I get to write all over this crap what I want to say, and you can't see it unless I show it to you. So Durham notes that, and, and this will be on, and this is the printout. So I don't know if this is the actual page number, right? But this is on page five of my printout. Joseph Smith had no qualms in using Freemasonry any more than Joseph Smith had any qualms. And this is me talking now. Any more than Joseph Smith had any qualms using and believing in astrology and magic. And the historical record's pretty clear on that. So, so this, now today, of course, not so new, not so shocking, but you still aren't going to hear this in church. <laughs> yeah, they've admitted it and confessed it. And they wrote a couple events and articles years back, and now they never bring those up or reference them or continue the conversation, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Let's go back to the Gospel Essentials manual where we correlated the lessons so that we can throw this crap out. We've admitted, yes, he was involved. Now, let's not discuss it for Pete's sake. Let's go back to faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. Here, okay, you have a small bite of steak. Here, grab your glass of milk. This is the meal we offer you. Yeah, well, I'm giving you steak and potatoes and good cooked vegetables tonight. I'm even going to give you the dessert of your choice. That's right. We're feasting tonight. One historian describes Joseph Smith as using, when it came to masonry, for instance, he used what he calls a grabbing on principle. Yeah. Yeah, now this matches what we know now about Joseph Smith. That's actually an astute observation. That's pretty good. This is the principle employed by Joseph Smith because this was explained that whatever was in his surroundings being preached, professed, or practiced, and it didn't really matter by who, it didn't matter whether he heard it by word, read it in an article, or had a book. It was irrelevant. He might have even listened to it on CD or watched it on YouTube. <laughs> he sometimes borrowed it, and then he incorporated it into his own theology and system. So the second concept is the Masons, as practiced in the church, under the prophet's direction, was daily becoming unorthodox, as understood by traditional Illinois masonry. So it appears that Joseph Smith first embraced masonry, and then he began to change it. Well, the changes, though, I just talked with my good friend George Miller tonight on the telephone, and uh, he's a past master of, of his lodge up there in Wisconsin. And he told me uh, Homer might not have this particular historical idea correct, but for now I'm going to go ahead and state it. All masonry was in flux without question. So it wasn't that Joseph Smith was changing things uh, 
for why the tension occurred between the Mormons and the Masons. So the concept of grabbing on and then expansion, expanding what he had into a theology that he was more, shall I say, familiar with, let's say. Yeah, this was Joseph Smith's method. Yeah, really. That's very interesting how, and the early Mormons completely embraced it. In fact, we have many, many instances of many early Mormons who said Joseph Smith, by creating the endowment, by grabbing on to this piece of Freemasonry here, this piece of the ancient mysteries there, studying one of the Jewish interpretations of the scripture there, by putting it all together into a ritual for the group to work through together to create a brotherhood, just like Freemasonry does. This idea of a ritualistic attachment and involvement was definitely influenced by Freemasonry, and all of the early Mormons ate it up. They loved it. They proclaimed Joseph Smith was restoring not just Jesus Christ's church. Man, they went way back. In Joseph Smith's day, it was understood uh, from the Masonic point of view, that is, uh, their legends and some of their myths and some of their ideas, they claimed, harked back to Solomon's temple right? And so the early Mormons said, what we have in the temple endowment that Joseph Smith gave us is a restoration of true masonry. They didn't shy away from this at all. I mean, this wasn't controversial at all for the first 150 years of Mormonism. It, it was actually understood and expected and agreed upon. Sure, you can always be a good Mormon and a good Mason. If you want to be a better Mormon, you ought to be a Mason. And if you want to be a better Mason, you better be a better Mormon. You better be a Mormon. <laughs> the early Mormons, that was their point of view. They heartily encouraged it all. That's fundamental. Very interesting. Uh, and this is the part, and for whatever reason, man, I'm telling you, uh, I, <laughs> I love this subject. This is one of the most intriguing subjects I have ever studied, and it is the mysteries. And, you know, I don't care what angle I go at. I could care less which culture I study them in. There's always celestial astronomical mysteries that just intrigue the all get out out of us as we delve into others' understandings of it. I mean, I've got several books up there by Avini, the Sky Watchers of Ancient Mexico, E. Krupp, Echoes of the Ancient Skies, Avini again, the Stairway to the Stars, the uh, 
the outer space symbolism of astronomy, star names by Allen. I've got The Secret of the Incas, Myth, Astronomy, and the War Against Time by Sullivan. I've got The Maya Cosmos by uh, David Friedel and Linda Sheely. I mean, all of this cosmological mythology of antiquity. I've also got the Greeks, uh, Aristophanes. I can't read. It's too small. I'm hygienist constellation myths. Anyway, there's a lot of, there's a boatload of stuff on the, the connection with mythology and the mysteries. And of course, like I read from Mersa Iliada, the sky, that's pretty important. I will get to that. I'm building up to that because Joseph Smith does not skip over this. And it is the critical the most important connection, and modern Mormonism wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's almost like they don't like Joseph Smith as he was. They want to reinvent Joseph Smith to fit their image of him, which is exactly the problem. Yeah, and I'll show that. They do the same thing with Jesus Christ. Of course, everybody does. Heck, we all do the same thing with God. Everybody does, <laughs> right? So the idea of the mysteries is to point to transcendence, as Eliada said, beyond ourselves to help us enlarge ourselves. And here's what he says. So uh, the prophet sermonized that these mysteries were to be discerned, unlocked, unraveled, and appropriately unfolded unto the church, line upon line, by one who holds the keys of the holy priesthood. And make no mistake about it, there is a Melchizedek priesthood in Freemasonry too. I promise. It's there. So if Masonry in reality, contained any of the true ancient mysteries, it would have been necessary for Joseph to accept it. So, and these mysteries are said to be traced back through the Hermetic philosophers. And Albert Pike, in his book Esoterica, says the same thing about Freemasonry. The basis, some of the some of the uh, extended understandings of so much of Freemasonry into 1717, where it actually officially was organized. But before that, it took materials from the Hermetic materials and the alchemical and the Gnostics. Albert Pike in his Esoterica talks about it. Very interesting. And these came through Plutarch and the Kabbalah and the Pythagoreans and the Magi of Medulia to Babylon to Chaldea and Egypt, so on and so forth. These mysteries came down into the modern institution of Masonry. And the 12th and 13th centuries AD, they had experienced so many progressive alterations, of course, that it had changed beyond actual recognition from the ancient view. And so along comes Joseph Smith, says, hey. I'll get a revelation from God. I will become a Freemason and I will show you the proper meaning of the ritual, which is exactly what the endowment ended up being from his point of view. That's pretty important to understand. So there we have it. So now 
We're going to do a quick little side note, and then it'll tie right back into Freemasonry. We now know that Joseph Smith owned a Jupiter talisman. And it was a silver Jupiter talisman. It was not that some of the magic books of his day and before, a century before, had said that they ought to make a talisman either out of silver or tin, if you're too poor for the silver. Joseph Smith got his Jupiter talisman out of silver. I'm going to hold it that. Oh, boy. Hard to see with all the background. There's his talisman. And I will be describing this here in just a few minutes. Here is the other side of his Jupiter talisman. And you can, you can Google this so easy. It's silly. It's not a big deal. It's easy to find online. The secret is out. Joseph Smith had a magic talisman. And oh, how the modern church has tried like crazy to downplay this or to distance Joseph Smith from the talisman. It can't be done because we know it being a Jupiter talisman correlates beautifully with his birth date. So we know it was deliberate. And we know Joseph Smith was in on the secret of the astrological significance and mythological significance of this magic talisman. And I mean that in a real fashion. That is how Joseph Smith understood it. Let's describe it a little bit. Let's take a look at this just a little bit more. So it seemed meant for him. This Jupiter talisman. Yeah, it was meant for Joseph Smith because on all levels of interpretation, it does not matter which level we give on all levels of interpretation, planetary, mythological, numerological, astrological, mystical, Kabbalistic, or talisman magic. It doesn't matter what level we talk about. The prophet was in every case appropriately described in the astrological and magical worldview based on his date of birth. That's pretty interesting. Okay. So, And the magic square, now let me look at this. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Okay, now I'm going to show you this. And again, you can find clearer pictures, better pictures on the Jupiter talisman. But you can see this magic square here. See the Hebrew letters? You can see the square right there, smack dab in the middle of the talisman, right? This magic square is pretty important because these 16 figures whether you add them up vertically or horizontally or diagonally, the total numerical value of the Hebrew letters equal 34. And the total of either the four columns up and down or the four vertical rows side to side, 
the letters numerically go to 136. And this is the number of the spirit and of the demon of the planet. This square protected the wearer from sorcery. Very interesting, isn't it? So we're not talking sorcery here. We're talking magic, protection, and significance of numerology with the Jupiter talisman. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet had a specific, and in some cases, a mystical and esoteric meaning, and it is the total comprehension of these meanings that give it its significance. The connection and importance of this particular talisman ties directly into Jupiter. This is extremely significant in relation to Joseph Smith. So on the one side of the talisman, you can see the Hebrew characters related to the square. Hold on, I got to get it back on my phone. This is worth showing you because I did not know this about this. This is, this is what was so cool. And I want to show you this while I read you this in a close-up. And you can find this in Quinn's book also. Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. I've got the first and second editions. I'm going to be using the second edition tonight. It's the part where he just slaps the polemist apologists silly with their dumb arguments against his view, right? Against his interpretation. So when we look at this magic square, when we look at this talisman, there's Hebrew characters on the sides of this Hebrew talisman. And that's really important. On the bottom is the sign of Jupiter. See that hole in the top? That's because he wore it as a necklace. The bottom shows the Jupiter sigil, right? And on the side over to the right is the Hebrew word, which means Ababa. And that means father. And at the top, you see another Hebrew word outside the square. Sorry, I'm not holding this very What happened? Oh, I see. Come on. It went dark. Sorry. Boy, amateur hour here. On the top here, you see another Hebrew word, elbow. E-L-B-O. This means God the Father or Father is God. And over on the side in the margin, you will see the name in Hebrew, Josfiel. Josfiel, which means Jehovah is spokesman of God. Jehovah is the mouth. So then on the other side, you see the Latin inscription, 
you see the Latin inscription around the around the edge there shows the the planetary influence and all that in the center. Then that Latin inscription, what that says is, confirm, O God, who is all powerful. Or Almighty God, confirm me or uphold me. It's been translated various ways. Support me, etc. This whole idea is not accurate grammatically, but that's the term on the medallion. The cross at the top represents the spirit of Jupiter, and you'll see the path of Jupiter in the orbit of the heavens. Yeah, and then again, the Jupiter sign. Yeah, that's what that squirrely little squiggly part is at the bottom. You see, you can see the you see the sign of Jupiter right there. And then this is the path of Jupiter in the sky. And then there's his, there's the Jupiter uh, orbit. So let me describe a little bit to you what Jupiter meant, which really is interesting. This will lead us right back into Freemasonry. Very cool. Jupiter, according to the Hebrews, is the morning star rising in the east and is called in that language Sadok or Zadok, which means righteous one. Now, the star in the east is one of the very definite Masonic emblems without question, man, and is used regularly in most Masonic ceremonies, the ever-approaching dawn of perfection and restored Masonic light. To the Egyptians, Jupiter is known as Ammon, but to the Greeks, he is known as Zeus, the ancient Sky Father, the Father of the Gods. According to the Greeks, Jupiter was seen as not only the great protecting deity of the race, he was the one, and perhaps the only one, whose worship embodied a distant moral conception. He is specifically concerned with oaths, treaties, and leagues. And it was in the presence of his priest that the most ancient and sacred form of marriage took place. That is, marriage for time and eternity. So in numerology, in numerology Jupiter's concern was with fortune of life. The planet is regarded as the kindly, benevolent planet, and the adjective jovial comes from or is derived from the word jove for Jupiter. The gifts that Jupiter brings are those of reason, understanding of humanity, plus the ability to see things in a broad outline. It is regarded as the planet that brings expansion in many different forms, and it weaves into the lives of some 
some persons skeins of generous impulse, ranging from generosity with material things to sympathy in spiritual matters. He also controls its expansion in all forms. Most of the philanthropists of the world are strongly Jupiter-oriented, and in the professions, those held under Jupiter's influence are legislators, bankers, and lawyers. In astrology, and this was interesting, in astrology, Jupiter is always associated with high positions, with getting one's own way, and all forms of status. That's kind of fun. Typically, a person born under Jupiter will have the dignity of a natural ruler. He knows what is due him, and he expects to receive respect accordingly. <laughs> That's Joseph Smith all the way, right? He will probably have an impressive manner and, in consequence, is likely to be elected to official positions in clubs and other organizations. In physical appearance, the highly developed Jupiterian is strong, personable, and awful, and often handsome. Jupiterians are often tall or rugged of physique. They're capable of great development. Astrology also declares that every year is governed by one of the planets, right? Yeah. And therefore, the planet directs the affairs of men for good or ill uh, during that year. And Joseph Smith's planet was Jupiter. And two significant years governed by Jupiter were 1805 and 1844. The day of the week governed was Thursday kind of interesting. The purpose of the table of Jupiter in talismanic magic was to be able to call upon the celestial intelligences assigned to the particular talisman to assist one in all endeavors. The names of the deities which we gave you who could be invoked by the table were always written on the talisman or represented by various numbers. Three such names were written on Joseph Smith's talisman, Abba, meaning father, El-Ab, father is God, or God the father, and Josphiel, Jehovah speaks for God, the intelligence of Jupiter. Very interesting, huh? When properly invoked, with Jupiter being very powerful and ruling in the heavens, these intelligences, by the power of the ancient magic, guaranteed to the possessor of this talisman the gain of riches, the favors, the power and love and peace, and to confirm honors and dignity and counsels. Talismanic magic further declared that anyone who worked skillfully with this Jupiter table would obtain the power of stimulating anyone to offer his love to the possessor of the talisman, whether from a friend, brother, relative, or even any female. Whether or not Joseph Smith was first introduced to this kind of magic through masonry is not known as at present. Now, this brings us so far 
to the end of the talisman at this point. I will give you more information on that in a moment. But I want to read further from a scholarly analysis called, and this was written, this is in the Zeitschrift für Alttestamentliche Wissenschaft, Z-A-W, for 1994. And it's called, this is by von John Perman Brown. And it's called Yahweh, Zeus, Jupiter, the high God and the elements. And I want to read just a couple of ideas in this scholarly article on the serious importance concerning Jupiter and how this tied in with the background theme that helped give Joseph Smith the psychological, yes, I want to do this thinking of having this talisman. Because this was knowledge that was brought down through the ages, whether it was the mythology or the masonry or wherever he got it, everyone was talking about the astrological significance of all of the planets, the houses of the planets, the significance, the powers, how to invoke the deities, etc., so this was pretty important. This is some of that background information that I don't think either Quinn nor Durham nor Homer talked about. And so this is probably one of my original contributions to this fun subject. And I'll just give you a few brief instances on this. How am I doing? An hour. Okay. I'm in good shape here. This won't take as long as I thought. Now, Greek and Latin, and this is on page 176 of Brown's article. Uh, Greek and Latin have the identical name of the high god, Sky Father. Now, from the Indo-European antiquity, Strunk following Schmidt shows that three Greek poetic formulas have Sanskrit counterparts. So this goes way back into antiquity. There's no question about that. The vocative Zu Pater, Zeus Father, from the Iliad, parallels the quasi-vocative Deus Pita at the Rig Veda. And so the nominative with the object, the Zeus Me Pater in the Iliad, the nominative Zeus Pater did not fit hexameter, but is frequently used, according to Pinder in his Olympian Odes, with Deus Pita in the Rig Veda. So the vocative reappears in the italic Jupiter. The Latin vocative is Jupiter with two Ps, Jupiter magne. In Greek, the god is the father of men and gods in the Iliad. And in Latin, independently or by imitation. According to Ennius in the Annals, he calls him the father of gods and king of men. So this is a very prominent deity power to be born under astrologically. And Joseph Smith had that. The bright sky appears without father in the dative Jupiter the lightning is understood, and this is Jupiter is identified as 
the lightning. Well, now that's great power, right? That's also light. So the Dius Pita, the Father Heaven in the Indic pantheon, is subordinate to Indra, who is the chief god in Greece, and Italy shows a common tradition. His name defines him as the god of the bright sky. Light always comes from heaven. That's why we call it enlightenment. Joseph Smith said it was revelation, inspiration, whatever you want to call it, but it always comes from heaven. Yeah. And the Greek God had a double role as God of the bright sky and the dark sky. Now, this is interesting because in the tripartition of the cosmos, in the Iliad of Homer, Zeus drew by lot the broad heaven in brightness and in clouds. Theocritus, sometimes Zeus is bright and sometimes he reigns. So Jesus restoring the sky father in Matthew 5.45 so that you may be of the sons of your father in heaven for he raises his son on the evil and good and reigns on the just and the unjust. That was Jesus's introduction to the father. In Rome, Jupiter is mostly associated like Zeus in his dark aspect with things that fall from the cloudy sky, the heavenly elements, the lightning, the thunder, the snow, the hail, the rain. And if you think, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. In North Dakota last week, they had hail the size of grapefruit falling. That would kill you. It's falling at several hundred miles an hour that size. That's impressive. Well, these people tied that in with the sky god as part of his weaponry, right? In their mythology, in their psychology. The lightning, the thunder, the storm, the hail, the rain, and the dew. The Indo-European god of the bright sky. Coming to the Mediterranean in Greece, he shared his attributes with a local god of the dark sky. So there's a light and a dark. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because the high God in Israel is basically the God of the dark sky, Yahweh. And he actually, by acquiring the characteristics from Egypt and Babylon, especially a little bit in Mesopotamia, because the Mesopotamian was taken into the Babylonian, right? And the Assyrian also had their Reshef, their, their storm god. So all these storm gods, men in Egypt, Reshef, and, and, uh, and then the Hittites too, but the Babylonian was Marduk, who was also a storm god. And of course, the famous ancient conflict of the gods between Marduk and Yahweh and all that from the Israelite point of view. So Yahweh adapted all these characteristics of the storm deity, but he was much more of a, well, he's described in the text, in the Masoretic text, as the uh, Yahweh is a man of war. And so he would, you know, he promised Israel, I'll fight your enemies for you and all that jazz, right? Well, he used the elements of the, the rain, the hail, the lightning, the thunder. It was also utilized in 
some part of the creation. And that's in the Genesis narrative as well. So I just basically wanted to show you some of the basic background with the mythology, the significance, the all-encompassing power that the ancients understood about their deities and where they came from and who they interlaced with. And all of these acquired properties in the various deities None of them were ever really forgotten. Sure, some cultures emphasize their deity more than the other cultures did. You know, we've got the Bible and Yahweh. Who doesn't know that? You don't hear a lot about Zeus in the Israelite conception, but you don't hear about Yahweh in the Greek conception. And you don't hear about Yahweh in the Romans who brought in Jupiter, which means the father, Jupiter. It's very interesting. It's all about this father sky god, as Merce Iliata talked about, this Jupiter. This is the mythology slash magical interpretation and view that Joseph Smith was an inheritor of in his day. It was not a dead subject by any means. So getting back to the Freemasonic theme, Durham noted something very interesting that I was pleasantly surprised. And my suspicion is with, with his... Uh, I mean, he's emphasizing the astrological aspects of Jupiter, right? He's talking about the, the mythology, you know, you bring in the Greeks and all that jazz. Of course, the modern Mormon leadership is not going to, that's going to make them uncomfortable. That's not an image that we're very comfortable with today. And in some respects, it's our loss because we are less dimensional. We are missing a depth from Joseph Smith's time that we don't have right now. And so I suspect this is part of what got Durham in trouble, but there's really, it would blow my mind if what I'm about to tell you next isn't what really got Durham in trouble. <laughs> and this is fascinating. There is a famous legend in Freemasonry where the grand orator elaborates in lecture form in the ceremonies of the 13th, the 14th, and the 21st degrees of Freemasonry, which has some very ancient roots bearing remarkable similarity to Mormonism. Out of ancient Kabbalistic lore and mythology, the refinement of the legend and their incorporation into modern masonry, all of this began in France yeah, between 1740 and 1760. But the legend was in American Masonic print in 1802. So Joseph Smith had access to this very interesting legend. So. Here it is. The basic introductory aspect of the legend is that up to the pre-existence, there was a special secret doctrine that was given by deity, and it was given down to the earth 
first to Adam. Adam then was to carefully guard this secret doctrine because it contained all of the mysteries. It contained the knowledge of God, and the name it contained was the sacred name of God. And Adam then bestowed this secret doctrine upon his son Seth, who guarded it very carefully. And it only among the inner circle of believers. I, this is, you know, this is typical of all religious societies as far as that goes. And then it was handed down, of course, until it came to Enoch. Now we get to the main person. With Enoch, the central figure in the legend, we have an absolute remarkable resemblance with Joseph Smith and Mormon history. Here's the legend of Enoch. Now, you can think about Joseph Smith, what you know about Joseph Smith, while I share with you. And this is the Masonic legend of Enoch, which Joseph Smith certainly would have been familiar with. Enoch, seventh in line of the patriarchs from Adam. He was 25 years old when he received his call and vision. He was taken up in vision onto a hill called Moriah. In vision, he saw a cave in the hill, a sacred vault in the bowels of the earth. The cavity was symbolized as being a container for sacred treasures, like an holy ark, and it had a lid on it. In vision, Enoch perceived shiny gold plate containing unknown engravings and symbols. He recognized the letter M upon the gold plate, which designated the name of the hill. He further saw the sacred name of God, of deity, which had been lost to all mankind, and he was commissioned by deity to preserve this knowledge. He foresaw that a flood would come to destroy all mankind, so he felt it was his duty to preserve the sacred mystery. He placed two pillars inside the hill. One was a marble pillar written in Egyptian hieroglyphics, where found the historical events connected with the Tower of Babel, and one was a pillar of brass, which contained the history of the creation and the secret mysteries. These records were placed in the hill along with the treasure of the gold plate. Enoch then placed a stone lid on its top, within which were contained maps and directions of the world and of the universe, and which also acted as a sort of an oracle. Enoch then placed a stone lid or slab over the cavity into the hill. Enoch predicted that on the other side of the flood, an Israelitish descendant would discover the sacred buried treasure. As predicted, after the flood, a great king named Solomon came to power and desired to build a sacred house in the indwelling of the divine presence could be, right? And so Solomon and his builders of masons, while building and excavating for the temple at Mount Moriah, 
discovered the cavern and the sacred treasure. After three attempts to obtain the treasure, they were finally successful. Those masons were very rejoiceful upon receiving these preserved mysteries. But three wicked men intervened and committed a horrible crime. They attempted to force one of the masons, one of the faithful masons who had discovered the treasure, Hiram Abiff, or Hiram, the widow's son, to reveal the hiding place and the contents of the hidden treasure. He would not reveal his knowledge, and therefore they killed him. While being slain, Hiram, with uplifted hands, cried out, O Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? This has since become a general Masonic distress call. Then three loyal Masons, seeking revenge, pursued the three evil ones, one of the three faithful masons overtook one of the arch-villains. He was asleep with his word, sword, or knife nearby, I mean. The mason slew the villain with his own knife by cutting off his head. In Masonic ceremonies, the word strike off his head were employed. As in Masonic ceremonies, or also in Masonic ceremonies, and this was in revolutionary France where this occurred, the reenacting of the killing of this villain, the tyrant's name was King Philippe Le Bel, Philip IV of the Fair, who destroyed the Knights Templar, actually. That's whose name it was. The loyal Mason was rewarded by King Solomon. The recovered treasury then became part of the temple treasury, of course. It consisted of the brass records, the gold plate, the metal ball, the breast plate, and the Urim and Thummim. <laughs> now, holy cow! right? I mean, come on! Serious? Yeah. No kidding. You go, uh, oh, <laughs> wow. So this is the Enoch legend in masonry of the secret doctrine or the sacred treasure of the sacred hill of the treasure of the widow's son. Now, the parallels, of course, to Joseph Smith are absolutely unmistakable, right? They really are. Joseph Smith, in a revelation from God, was himself named Enoch. Were you aware of that? I was. That's fascinating. Even by God, when Joseph Smith also was 25 years old, he was brought forth his sacred record as well. His sacred record was buried in the hill by a man who had the initial M, Moroni. There were gold plates containing the mysteries of God there were also in Egyptian hieroglyphics or some Egyptian form, there were brass plates, which also contained an account of the creation of the world. 
there was another record which contained an account of the Tower of Babel, the cavity in the hill, and the hill and the cavity. Joseph saw both in vision. They were covered with a stone lid. The other treasures in the stone box were the breastplate, the Urim and Thummim, as well as the round metal ball, which serves as a director and was called the Leahona. <laughs> wow. Joseph Smith also claimed to be an Israelite, and he too made several fruitless attempts at getting the treasure when he first saw it. Joseph Smith had three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and the record itself bears witness that an arch villain named Laban was thwarting the availability and accessibility of the sacred records. They had his head cut off with his own sword. This prophet also built temples for the indwelling of God's spirit. Now, these parallels, dramatic as they seem, are entirely dwarfed by the final parallel. And, and this is just, this just kind of takes your breath away. This is fun stuff. It's really interesting. All of these aspects of the legend seem transformed into the history of Joseph Smith. So much so that it appears to be a kind of a symbolic acting out of Masonic lore, doesn't it? Remarkable. Then, in the point of the drama, the action goes beyond metaphor, and the symbol merges into a tragic reality. This has to do, of course, with the death of Hiram Abiff in the Masonic legend and the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. In June, Joseph Smith gave himself up to be imprisoned in Carthage, 1844, June 27th. A mob stormed the Carthage jail, of course. Hiram was killed instantly. John Taylor was seriously wounded. Joseph Smith, in running to the window, was shot in the back. And as he went to jump, he began to cry out the Masonic cry, O oh Lord my God, is there no help for the widow's son? But he didn't get it all the way out because he was shot again and he fell out the window. And then he was killed. It was Freemasons in the mob, according to the record, who killed him. So, was Joseph Smith a fulfillment of Enoch's prophecy? <laughs> I, that, that, is, that is really crazy, isn't it? That is quite amazing. That is so interesting. Now, Durham's conclusion is, I do not believe that the Nauvoo story can be adequately told without an inquiry into Freemasonry. And I can only say a hearty amen. Really, truly, seriously. So is there no help for the widow's son? Read Durham. Now, he got really in trouble by the church education system for giving this talk, which is just ludicrous. See what this does to us? This shows us how far removed modern Mormonism is from the actual history of what really happened. And they've suppressed so much stuff, and they've changed 
other stuff around to fit their wonderful, oh, Joseph is always a true prophet image. That's just silly. It, it, it doesn't even border on. They've mythologized Joseph Smith. Studying the Freemasonic ideas, themes, and parallels from Freemasonry into the temple endowment actually takes away the modern Mormon mythologization of Joseph Smith and puts a little bit more reality into the truth, right? Yeah. Well, do Mormonism, does Mormonism want the truth? Uh, well, it depends. Is it faith-promoting? See how they've shifted the basis into a hokey, faith-promoting brainwash. Now, I choose my words deliberately because if you ever delved into Mormon history and you found materials like this, you could have got excommunicated. You still can, which is crazy. All you're doing is showing the historical material. What do you mean you're excommunicating me for telling the historic truth? No, for not accepting our version. Well, that's just asinine. Their version isn't close to reality whatsoever. In fact, unfortunately, what this has done is for me, and I mean, you're welcome to, to do however you need to do to be at peace in your own heart and soul with Mormonism, however you want to handle it, is I'm not telling you what to do, but for me, I can't trust them now because the historical information coming out now definitely shows that they have not been valid with their own history. And yet they want to say, well, we're the restoration of truth. Really? You're more like the brainwashers of a phony faith. And if you're going to excommunicate me for not accepting that, I will scream hallelujah. Because the truth is more important than faith-promoting stuff. Yeah, baby. I'll drink to that. So there's my... Uh, Woohoo! There's my diatribe. Okay, so now on to D. Michael Quinn, uh, early Mormonism and the magic worldview. This is really good stuff. Uh, now I'm going to use the second edition, and of course I'm going to I'm going to bump along and just pick and choose. <laughs> See, I'm doing what I accuse the Mormons of doing, but you don't want me to take every cotton picking subject out of his 700-page uh, book tonight, right? So please allow me the pleasure of picking and choosing, emphasizing some details. But I'm giving you the reference and encouraging you to read it yourself. The majority of you have probably read it already. Now, the first edition was fun. It was. It, it was, uh, <laughs> actually, it was shocking. I walked around for months just, wow, in a daze. I was dazed and confused. Used. The second edition is better because the, the debate of do we actually just tell the truth in history or do we 
make it a faith-promoting mythology and then threaten people's church memberships and spiritual salvation if they don't accept our obvious phony rebuilding of the history. Well, the apologists defended the phony junk. Quinn trounces him in the second edition. Yeah. Especially the polemicists, the William Hamblins, the Daniel Petersons, the Lou Midgley's, those guys who really are paid apologists. And so I'm not going to deal with that, though. I want to deal more with the Masonic ideas because being a Freemason myself, I find I strongly disagree with D. Michael Quinn's discussion on Freemasonry and Mormonism in some of its elements, and I'll identify them tonight. So first let me say, and I've just got bits and pieces, I'm on page 71 for those of you who have this book. Yes, you're welcome to open up your priesthood meeting manual, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. We're on lesson on ritual magic, astrology, amulets, and talismans, page 71. Read along. Brother Jones, would you like to read this paragraph? No? Well, then let me do it. Contemporary almanacs show that Smith's birth on 23rd of December, 1805, was in the sign of Capricorn, and the planet is Saturn. Well, I've been making a big deal about Jupiter. Hang on. Don't get your panties in a wad. Hold on. However, he was also born in the first of three, 10 degree arcs, which are called decans. So he was born in the first decan of Capricorn. And this decan is what is ruled by Jupiter. In addition, a specific planet governed each year, and Jupiter ruled... Jupiter ruled 1805. Therefore, Jupiter ruled both his birth year and his birth date within the zodiacal sign. Within the magic worldview, Jupiter had enormous significance for Joseph Smith. Make no mistake about this. This is critical. This is so interesting. In ancient times, astrologers, I should say, stated that the decans have infinite power and freedom in indicating the fates of men. Yeah, the decans thus preside over everything and maintain cosmic order. See, this is pretty important as a basis for Joseph Smith's psychology, isn't it? Very interesting here. They also influence men's affairs collectively and individually, and they cause large social events such as the changes of kings or famines or pestilences, floods, earthquakes. An 1820 book, an 1822 book, referred to the Elohim, the decans, 
or the symbols which presided over the 36 subdivisions of the zodiac. And they added these decans or the Elohim are the gods of whom it is said he created the universe. By a well-established astrological heritage now, Smith's ruling planet of Jupiter in his decan of birth was more significant than Capricorn's planet of Saturn for his zodiacal sign. And I'll bet you've never heard that in Sunday school, have you? But I'm not done. Hang on. More on page 72. Joseph Smith as church president now, gave himself the code name Barak El, which had traditional use as an incantation for magic ceremonies emphasizing Jupiter, the ruling planet of his birth. Emma Smith Bidemon's family preserved a magic artifact consecrated to Jupiter, and she told them that her martyred husband valued this possession greatly. Let's take a look. On page 81 now of Quinn, Early Mormonism in the Magic World View. Astrological belief among Smith's followers was consistent with their faith in his prophetic career. Astrology books had consistently affirmed to the mid-1820s that Jupiter in one's birth signifies religious men, church men, that Jupiter governed the whole Levitical order, all ministers of churches. Because of his birth in the sign of Capricorn, astrologically inclined believers would expect Smith to have hostile family, great struggles, mobility of life, several marriages. Wow. <laughs> right? His many residences in seven states are pretty well known by now, right? Yeah, as is the hostility of his wife, Emma, against Joseph Smith's many marriages. Yeah. <laughs> and he was obviously a religious man, a preacher, a leader, a church minister, right? So in a book that was uh, considered magical in the century before Joseph Smith, they called it the Book of Fate, and it was listed in the same Palmyra book advertisement that another book that, uh, uh, oh, where is it? It was listed, I'm going to show you this because I got this years ago after I read Quinn, Barrett's The Magus. Man, if you don't have this, you're missing out. You got to get this book. I don't know if it's even available anymore. Fantastic book. This book is where Joseph Smith learned how to create his own Jupiter talisman. 
the exact same one is described in here. And it was available to Joseph Smith. Right. True story. Quinn shows all that. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but he shows all that. I'll leave it to you to find it in Quinn where, right? Because it's so fun for you to discover this crap for yourselves, right? I'll drink to that. Yeah, baby. All right, continuing on this major obfuscation here. In the book of fate, added that in love, a Jupiterian will be extremely amorous, much attached to the female sex. Wow. Rather fickle in his affections. Amorous, oh, but kind and loving to his wife. Likewise, disaffected Mormons also denounced Joseph Smith for being anointed in April 1844 as theocratic king, priest, and ruler over Israel on the earth, while he was also candidate as president of the United States. This was a reminder that the Book of Fate had noted in the 1820s that those born under this planet, Jupiter, are remarkable for their ungovernable ambition. The astrological dominance of Jupiter in Joseph Smith's life is also reflected, <laughs> this is kind of cool, in an artifact preserved by Emma Smith after her widow's marriage into the Bitterman family. She told them that this medallion was of special significance to the Mormon prophet. In September 1902, her stepson displayed it to LDS apostle John Henry Smith. And his diary noted, Mr. Charles E. Bitterman showed us a medal said to have been saved by Joe, carved by Joseph Smith with this inscription on it, Confirm Odeus Potentissimus. One of the apostles' traveling companions gave more detail about what Bitterman said on that occasion. 11-year-old Henry D. Moyle was keeping a daily record of this trip, which showed that he was already a perceptive observer. According to his biographer, the young man's diary noted, a man showed us a piece of metal found in the pocket of the prophet when he was killed. It is about the size of a coin dollar. It had a Latin phrase meaning, Oh God, make me all-powerful and many. Therefore, to an LDS apostle visiting from Utah in 1902, Emma Smith's stepson, Charles E. Bitterman, made several statements about this artifact. It was created or carved by Joseph Smith. He possessed it, of course. It was inscribed, confirm Odeus Pontetissimus. The phrase meant, oh God, make me all powerful. Now, of course, there's been arguments and discussions over what the Latin phrase really means, various different interpretations. It was understood by Bitterman that it was Joseph Smith's Masonic emblem. However, in that, he probably was mistaken. It had more to do with with uh, magic instead of masonry, 
right? So Smith's silver piece was not a Masonic emblem. It is a silver talisman, a silver Jupiter medallion constructed according to the instructions in this book, the Magus by Barrett. Fascinating, isn't it? And all you thought was Joseph Smith read only the scriptures, right? <laughs> oh, I wish they would open up priesthood meeting to the real stuff, don't you? Yeah, baby. So, here we go. I'm on page 84 now of Quinn. You got to use Quinn. It is clear that Joseph Smith's silver talisman depended upon Barrett's magus because we know that the talisman had all of the same Hebrew words on the side of that magic square. It had the same Hebrew letters, and on the obverse side, it had the same Latin inscription as Barrett inscribed, instructed to inscribe on a Jupiter talisman. So that's fascinating. This amulet was an amulet designed for personal protection. And it was to be worn around your neck, underneath your clothing, against your skin. And that's why we never heard about it. Because it wasn't for the world to know. It was for Joseph Smith and his protection. So he kept it sacred. He kept it secret against his own chest. That's not a big deal, right? Boy, today's Mormons freak out when you tell them that. You ever tried telling them that? Go ahead and walk up to a Mormon, you know, and say, hey, you know what? I heard tonight on YouTube, that, or the other night on YouTube, that uh, Joseph Smith owned a magical talisman, and it was for protection. And no, it wasn't a temple garment. It was a metal coin that was astrologically tied in with Jupiter. Go ahead and watch how they react. I mean, right now. You know, we've known about this for, what, 30 years now? And they still aren't familiar with it. It's amazing how ignorant Mormons love to stay, right? Of course, there are two kinds of Mormons, chapel Mormons and, and uh, internet Mormons. You know, Dr. Shades was right about that. So, okay. Let me move on real quick. Yeah, it also kept you from the influence of witches and sorcery. So it, it was a talisman of protection. No joke. Yeah. Uh, page 87, D. Michael Quinn. And then... Yeah, well, here is how Barrett described the idea of the earthly blessings that a Jupiter talisman would bring us. Uh, you gain riches and favor, love, peace, and concord to appease enemies and to confirm honors, dignities, and counsels. And another purpose, let me move my bookmark here. Another purpose of the Jupiter talisman was that no witchcraft or sorcery be done in your house. Yeah, I just said that. Sorry. <laughs> I got ahead of myself. Almost prophetic, isn't it? Ooh, boy, that could be dangerous. No, let's not go there. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There was a special religious significance as well, following Barrett's instructions to make the talisman out of silver rather than tin, which Joseph Smith did do. Silver amulets were regarded as especially potent against evil spirits. Agrippa's occult philosophy specified that the silver Jupiter talisman would dissolve enchantments. Young Joseph often said enchantment blocked his seer stone's view of buried treasure. Whoa. Interesting. This made the Jupiter talisman worth its cost to him in the 1820s. So, and then his cane had astronomical significance on it. Saturn ruled over Smith's zodiacal birth sign Capricorn. Jupiter was the ruling planet of his birth and the traditional magic view, they could soothe poisonous serpents. And on his cane was a carved crown on Smith's serpent cane is a symbol that closely resembled the magic seal or sigil of Jupiter. Stylistically, the carving of the serpent head flows into three descending symbols. Carved on the Smith cane are the apparent sigil of Jupiter, the crown, and the initials J.S., those symbols seem to convey the message, Jupiter reigns over Joseph Smith. And I've got a picture of that. If you have Quinn's book, you can look this up. It might be clearer than my picture here. But I did take a picture of that. Oh, there's his magic apron, or his parchment, I should say. Oh, there we go. There we go. This is the... Uh, this is the cane in the museum, the church museum of history. And then here's the, uh, uh, I didn't get a real good picture. It's all right. Here's the picture of his cane with the crown up top, the J and the S, and that serpent going all the way through it. I think that's pretty cool, man. So, that's more evidence of the importance of the Jupiter in Joseph Smith's life. Oh, and then he had the dove medallion for peace that he used. See, there was more than just the cane and the seer stone and the Jupiter talisman. He also had a dove with the olive branch in its beak as a talisman. And that was to be expected in folk magic. So hold on, let me see here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to get into this. This this is too cool to lose, too. They gave themselves coded names in the Doctrine and Covenants. They were trying to hide from the mob, right? And Joseph Smith's name was Barak Ale. Um and so 
Apostle Orson Pratt explained Joseph Smith was called Barakel, which was the Hebrew word uh, meaning God bless you. A Hebrew scholar verified that Pratt's definition was valid according to the Spanish Sephardic transliteration methods of Joseph Smith's teacher of Hebrew, Joshua Sixes. However, Barakel was also a name in the occult sciences. Very interesting. Occult books Welcome, Jenny May. Occult books uh, usually spelled the name of this angel as Barkiel, B-A-R-C-H-I-E-L. Barakel, B-A-R-A-K-A-L-E, is how Joseph Smith spelled it. In the occult literature, the spelling was a little bit different, right? Well, David P. Wright observes that the LDS spelling of Barak Ale reflected both the influence of Joseph Smith's Hebrew teacher and some sort of a cross-influence through magical texts and traditions. The seven-volume Legends of the Jews later noted that Barak Ale taught men divination from the stars. I'm going to repeat that. I mean, dang. Yeah, the seven-volume Legends of the Jews later noted that Barakel taught men divination from the stars. And this is also stated in Lawrence's Book of Enoch in Joseph Smith's day. Parley Pratt got a copy of it in 1840. And a dictionary of angels further explained that Barakel or Barkiel means the lightning of God. You remember that article I just quoted from, that scholarly article on Yahweh, Zeus, and Jupiter. One of the main characteristics of the ancient sky deities was their thunderbolt. And the men god, the Ithophalic god sitting on the throne, in facsimile number two in the book of Abraham, is the Egyptian god Men, the lightning thrower. It was adapted by the Israelites to Yahweh. And now we find out the Barak El also means that. And that was Joseph Smith's code name. Fantastic connections everywhere. He is one of the seven archangels, one of the four ruling seraphim, the angel of the month of February. In addition, he is a ruler of the planet Jupiter and the zodiacal sign Scorpio. And further, and Pisces. A 19th century French analyst even established a direct link between ceremonial magic, ceremonial magic, and Joseph Smith's Barak Ale. Moshe Schwab identified the angel name, meaning God bless you, as Barak El in magic inscriptions on artifacts in the Louvre. He also found inscriptions of Barak El. In the with the same meaning, but specifically designated for Jupiter. 
<laughs> it always keeps coming back, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? So Smith's code name, Barak Ale, is the one official link of Mormonism's founding prophets with his governing planet, Jupiter. This link also exists in the talisman attributed to Joseph Smith family of his name and in the magic apartments maintained by another branch of the Smith family. Aside from providing the inscriptions and the design of Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman, Francis Barrett's book, The Magus, this one, this book right here, provides another significant insight for Smith's Jupiter-linked name, Barak Ale. This 1801 occult handbook showed that Barkiel presides over the Hebrew tribe of Ephraim, as well as over Pisces in February grandson of biblical patriarch Jacob, that is Israel, and son of Joseph, Ephraim was the focus of Mormon teachings about the tribes of Israel. By revelation, Joseph Smith learned that he was from the tribe of Ephraim. <laughs> I mean, does it ever stop? Nope. I got more. Well, Quinn has more. Most of you probably already read this. Hope I'm not boring those of you who've read this. It's a big audience tonight. Welcome, everybody. I haven't been able to say hi to all of you in the in the uh, chat, but I will. Mormon officials and scholars generally agree that Mormonism reached its doctrinal apex in 1842 to 1844, of course. I mean, that, that's pretty basic nowadays. When Joseph Smith gave instructions about the temple endowment. Now, here is where I've been leading up to. So the word mysteries had a well-recognized singular reference in Joseph Smith's time now. Buck's Theological Dictionary on sale in the Palmyra area from 1817 to the 1820s stated the mysteries is a term used to denote the secret rites of the pagan superstitions, which were carefully concealed from the knowledge of the vulgar, in other words, the common people. And they originated in Egypt, which was the native land of idolatry, right? So Smith later quoted from Buck's Dictionary. From Smith's time to the present, these ancient mysteries have been viewed as the climax of the occult tradition and the magic worldview. And New York's Lutheran president observed in the year 1810, the mysteries were not only a great support in magic to magic, but they also gave it to a new and more shining appearance. In 1817, study of the Eleusinian Mysteries said this, if it were possible to lift the veil, which covers the mysteries of Eleusius, we should possess a key to the mysteries of Egypt and of the East. In the early 1830s, LDS revelations announced an imminent restoration of hidden or secret mysteries. And what were those mysteries? Well, let's look. <laughs> now, here is where I begin to disagree 
with Michael Quinn. Although contemporary Freemasonry claimed some derivation from the ancient mysteries, such as the Eleusinian, no Mason at Joseph Smith's time or thereafter defined the central purpose of Masonic rites to be an ascent into heaven. And here he doesn't grasp Masonry because he's not a Mason. I disagree. But you have to understand the symbolism and the meaning of the ritual and the enactment of the play, just like was set up in the endowment, right? Art de Hoyos, one of America's most knowledgeable researchers in Masonic history, has recently written that there are several allusions to a concept of heavenly ascent in Freemasonry, although they are certainly not the central theme. Uh, and Quinn says it was a personal note written to him by Art de Hoyos. My impression is Art de Hoyos is deflecting D. Michael Quinn because he knew he wasn't a Freemason. So it's all good. But there's your hint. The core of Masonry is Hiram Abiff, the ultimate ascent into heaven. And every Mason mimics imitates and becomes Hiram Abiff, who in Pike's esoterica signifies Jesus Christ. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. So on page 229 now, that was on page 228 with my commentary. On page 229 now, it is true that a New York anti-Mason complained in 1829 that many of the fraternity rest their hopes for heaven on Masonry. This was a result of Masons like Calcott preferring to heaven as referring to heaven as the celestial lodge and praising Freemasonry as tending to the glory of God and to secure to them temporal blessings here and eternal life hereafter. Likewise, Town wrote in 1822, in advancing to the fifth degree, the Freemason discovers his election to and his glorified station in the kingdom of his father. Here he is taught how much the chosen ones are honored and esteemed by those on earth who discover and appreciate the image of their common Lord. This image being engraved on his heart, he may look forward to those mansions above where a higher and more exalted seat has been prepared for the faithful from the foundation of the world. So let's see what Quinn continues on. Here's where I truly think Quinn as a non-Mason uh, is just not privy to the inside lectures and discussions of the deeper meanings of the symbols in Blue Lodge Masonry, in Royal Arch Masonry, in the Scottish Rite, etc. And so... He's not going to get the full information 
And so he does not grasp the point. He pulls a humibly on us in this book, and he goes, he skips over masonry, or else he poops it and diminishes it, and the serious significance of all things Freemasonry in the temple endowment, he diminishes that in order to show us the ancient parallels. And that's what I'm looking forward to getting to here in just a couple of minutes, because it's fantastically interesting how he does this. I really thought this was worth presenting. Oh, well, here he goes. Hugh Nibley and other LDS scholars have consistently turned to the occult rites of ancient Egypt and Gnostic mystery religions to demonstrate by parallel evidence the antiquity of Mormon endowment rituals. Uh, as William J. Hamblin has noted, much of Nibley's other work before 1989 also abounds with references to early Gnosticism, which has important links to the hermetic and alchemical traditions of late antiquity. Now, it just so happens that Pike, in his Esoterica, also demonstrates that the Freemasonry harks back to the hermetic and alchemical materials and the Gnostics. So Quinn, jumping over the contemporary evidence and relevance to get to the ancients, really dulls Occam's razor. But the sharp Occam's razor of truth and reality slashes his argument away. You don't get to do that, Mike Quinn, sorry. Even Hugh Nibley in his One Eternal Round, his last book, the one that was published posthumously, he shows the alchemical and hermetical elements and the Freemasonic materials in there also. I think it became too overwhelming to him. He had to show the Freemasonic influence because of so many Mormon Freemasons who said, dude, you just don't have this correct. And he didn't. Well, neither did Quinn. And that's okay. Historians can make errors of judgment. We all understand that. Every one of us do that also. So he goes on. Now he said, this is what just fascinated me about all of this. And then I'll close out. Yeah, I've been two hours. I'm done. I, I'm just about done. Uh, so Quinn says, and I'm on page 230. I'll, I'll quickly just summarize Quinn's materials on page 230 through, uh, let's see, 230 through 234 in the Early Mormonism and Magic Worldview, second edition. Okay. Now, uh, from my point of view, now, from my uh, particular life experience, I have one up on Quinn in that I have the Masonic experience, and Quinn didn't. But that doesn't mean his ancient discovered parallels with the Mormon endowment are not actually there. It just means that we don't have to go that far back. It's right there in Joseph Smith's front yard where he got this from. Okay, let me show you this. This is great stuff. 
I love Mike Quinn and his research. But in this one, good brother, you were just dead wrong. So here we go. But that doesn't mean he's got bad stuff. Nope, not allowed. These are the fundamental characteristics of the ancient mysteries and the LDS endowment. Okay. Number one, revealed by God from the beginning, but distorted through apostasy. That is Masonic. Now, Quinn wouldn't know that, being not being a Mason, but that is definitely Masonic, right? So, the LDS apostle, John A. Whitstrom, I'm on page 231 now. The LDS apostle, Ah, John A. Witzel has written that there is every reason to believe that from Adam to Noah, temple worship was in operation. Yes, pure Masonic understanding. Also says that. And if this blessing, that is the endowment, was given to Adam, would it not likely be conferred upon others through the years that followed. Yes, it would. And Freemasonry shows you how. Truly. Hugh Nibley noted Latter-day Saints believe that their temple ordinances are as old as the human race and represents a primordial revealed religion that has passed through alternate phases of apostasy and restoration, which have left the world littered with the scattered fragments of the original structure some more or less recognizable, but all badly damaged and out of proper context for all the world. He's giving one of the major lectures in Freemasonry. But poor Quinn wouldn't have known that. But it's in Masonry. Two, the worthiness of initiates. That is definitely Masonic. Three, the washings and anointings. Oh, my, that's the Scottish, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. The idea of clothing. Well, you've got the Masonic apron. That is definitely Masonic. There's no question about that. And the initiates in the ancient mysteries wore pure whiteness of linen garments. Uh, yeah. <laughs> True. Masonic. The ordinances of washing and anointing, according to Apostle Packer. Yep. It's the Scottish Rite. Definitely. So the fourth item is the vows of non-disclosure. Oh, my. That is absolutely Masonic. Fundamentally so. The fifth idea is the lesser and greater rituals. Truly Masonic. There are lesser and greater rituals. Varying degrees, without question. Number six, the presentation through drama. Yeah, the legend of Hiram Abiff is truly acted out. It, it was a great experience when I went through it. I'll put it that way. So absolutely Masonic. Faber's 1816 discussion, he says, observed that the mysteries involved a sort of a pantomime 
that displayed the lapse of the soul from original purity into a state of darkness, confusion, and ignorance. They affected to teach the initiate how they might emerge from this state of darkness and ignorance, how they might recover what had been lost. I mean, this is pure masonry, man. The lost word, the legend of Hiram Abeth, the entered apprentice being blindfolded and then it having come off his eye. It's all Masonic, man. How they might pass from the gloom of error into the splendid brightness of regained paradise. I mean, my gosh, it's almost like he's quoting Masons in Joseph Smith's day. Oliver, in his Antiquities of Freemasonry, 1823, I believe it was. An apostle Witzo added that the LDS endowment is presented first by the spoken word, ding, 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 beautiful masonry, through lectures and conversations. <laughs> yeah, every Wednesday night, man. <laughs> Freemason meetings weekly. Then by the appeal to the eye, by representations, by living, moving beings. <laughs> Pure Freemasonry, man. I'm not kidding. Apostle Packer added that each of the endowment's actors has his part and dialogue. I would add that's perfect Freemasonry in the ritual. I mean, how do you think Joseph Smith learned about the signs, tokens, penalties, hand clasps, and five points of fellowship, if not by experiencing them? and then incorporating them into the endowment, right? Yeah. The seventh is the oath of chastity. Well, this is the master mason thing. This is what you take as a master mason. The ordinances of the endowment embody certain obligations on the part of the individual, such as covenant and promise to observe the law of strict virtue and chastity. That is the master mason. Eight, the sun and the moon. Wow, the trestle board. Yeah, that, that's pure Masonic symbolism. Yeah, the sun, moon, and stars were prominent symbols in the exterior decorations of two 19th century Mormon temples at Nauvoo and Salt Lake City. Yeah, Brother Quinn, who the hell do you think Joseph Smith got that idea from? I'll give you a hint. It was the Masons. <laughs> yeah. So number nine, mortals exalted to godhood. Again, the Hiram Abiff legend. Yeah, fundamentally so. The encyclopedia added that in the ancient mysteries, the unity of the supreme being was maintained, exhibited, and inculcated. Correct. Yes. I say that Masonically. Ten, prophets, priests, and kings. This is the royal arch Masonic connection. Definitely. I promise. You have to be a Mason. <laughs> I, I promise. Ask a Mason, you know. And number 11, God's once mortal. Adam holds the keys of the universe. Once again, the Hiram Abiff legend began as a conception of Adam and Jesus Christ combined. Paul said, the first Adam 
and then the second Adam, the earthly Adam and the heavenly Adam. Ah, this is pure masonry, I I promise. Oliver, the Antiquities of Freemasonry, talks all about. My good friend George Miller shared some comments online on Shade's message board on Mormonism, the Church and Freemasonry, where he demonstrates how the initiate rituals of being in darkness and coming to light began with Adam in the Freemasonry, and by that becoming exalted more and more into the light until we are perfected in the celestial lodge. That's Freemasonry, man. Adam holds the keys of the universe. And whenever the keys of the priesthood, he says, are revealed from heaven, it's by Adam's authority. Masons wouldn't argue with that. That's what they teach. Adam is the one through whom Christ has been revealed from heaven and will continue to be revealed from here forth. And finally, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. The Esoterica by Arthur de Hoyos, the Esoterica of Albert Pike, describes the Hiram Abiff legend as being a symbol of Jesus Christ, and the initiate plays the part of Hiram Abiff in the drama in the Masonic Lodge to become Hiram Abiff. Pure masonry. Absolutely 100% of those ancient parallels that Quinn claims is in the Mormon endowment could very well be. I'm not arguing that they're not. I'm not arguing at all that the Freemasonic parallels lessen the significance of the ancient parallels as far as that goes. I'm saying you don't have to postulate. You don't have to look through all of those ancient documents, the the Pistis Sophia, for instance, and all that. None of the Gnostic stuff of which Joseph Smith had in the first place anyway. He certainly did not have any of the Egyptian papyri other than the one he had and badly mangled in a pseudo-translation. But I've learned now that he was doing something else anyway. And no, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> not yet. It'll all come out in time. So my whole point in tonight's presentation is the there is no shame, or there should, I'll put it this way, there ought not to be any shame. There ought not to be any problematic issues with, oh, that's going to damage my testimony. Then throw your damn worthless testimony out the window because history verifies that Joseph Smith's testimony was based with the light from God through magic and Freemasonry. And that is worth knowing. Unfortunately, like I've said, 
the uh, the downtick here, the 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 negative. It's not something I invented, thank goodness. But it really is a nasty negative because Boyd K. Packer didn't have the spirituality to see the greater mystery vision that Joseph Smith had. And so Boyd Packer stupidly and lamely called for cutting out anything that he didn't like because it wasn't very useful. Well, Boyd, you messed up big time. Because not only were you wrong theologically, you were wrong historically, magically, masonically, astrologically, philosophically, and religiously. Sucks to be you. History will teach us Something really remarkable, and, and with this, I will I will begin to wind down. I'll close it out. I've been here two and a half hours. That's enough time. But seriously, history will teach us one thing. What you think you know may not be so. What you think you've proven through historical analysis will always only be partial because we really are finite beings, but we're looking toward the infinite mystery for further light and knowledge to someday gain it. But what we know changes. Man, that's the lesson of history. Hey, that's a lesson of archaeology. I mean, when you really think about it, you compare the ancient philosophers to the modern philosophers. Modern philosophy has also probably lost its way because they love talking more and more about less and less without giving us any kind of real, cool, actual reality and instruction. But the ancient guys were Dang good at that. That's what makes them so much fun to read. And what they always did is they brought in the cosmos and its symbolisms. And I mean publicly, sure, there was a secret. You know, Clement of Alexandria, Morton Smith wrote that fantastic book on the secret mark. Uh, demonstrating how Clement of Alexandria in early Christianity, he finally had to be forced to confess, yeah, we have a secret doctrine. Secrecy itself has to be given for the reason that the masses just simply will not get it. You must. Now I'm starting to sound like a Mormon, aren't I? And yet that part of their theme really has a validity because you don't give razor blades to babies to play with. You don't talk about sex to four-year-olds and you don't teach them and let them have it at age six, seven, and eight, do you? Well, hell no. There is a secrecy. There is a time for all things. There is an order. I mean, that makes real good sense now. Well, and then when you see the connection with so many other ancient mysteries, it's just not that 
problematical. It should be glorifying Joseph Smith in today's Mormon's eyes, and instead they're running scared stiff about learning anything except faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. They keep drinking milk for decades, and they're deathly sick with no faith in their bones whatsoever, let alone knowledge, because what they think they have in the mysteries, they don't, which is really sad and unfortunate. So am I saying I do have it? No. But it could be available. And now I sound like a Mormon again, don't I? Isn't that crazy how that works, right? Oh, well, yeah, you know, join the church, pay your tithing, go through the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood offices for a couple of years, and then get access to our temple. And that is the pinnacle. It's supposed to be. But when you denigrate the very basis of its reason for existence in a negative fashion, then you destroy its own significance. And when you change the meanings of the ground of which the endowment rests up on, then you lose the fuller meaning of your own view. Why not put it all together like Joseph Smith was trying to do? Because you have this stupid, narrow, myopic, royal thinking that, oh, we know better. Joseph Smith didn't. We know Joseph Smith was not a Mason. The Holy Ghost has testified to us. Bullshit. When you take that approach, that destroys my faith, my trust in you even knowing what the Holy Ghost does or is or how it acts, because we have historical proof that Joseph Smith and Masonry meant everything to Joseph Smith and everyone around him in all of Nauvoo, not just for a few weeks, years. Years after Joseph Smith was killed, they made more Freemasons in Illinois than in all of the American lodges combined. They did more in Nauvoo, Illinois, in the Masonic Lodge in Joseph Smith City after he was dead. They doubled the size of American Masonic membership. And you're telling me that doesn't mean nothing? Come on. When you guys grow up and show your brains, turn your intelligence on and start doing actual historical research, then maybe I might begin possibly to trust a little bit 
But now you're under a real rigorous dispensation of having to provide serious ironclad proof because the stupidity you've been spouting for my lifetime doesn't instill any faith in me that modern Mormonism has a clue. And therein is your problem, not mine. That's not my fault. I'm not even going to let you blame me. Well, if you weren't such a lazy learner, well, Russell Nelson, how much can you tell me about Freemasonry? Have you ever joined? If you have, how much have you studied it? And if you really have, and you're still trying to convince us that Joseph Smith wasn't involved in Freemasonry, I'll debate you publicly on that subject, sir. I promise you can't win. I've got history on my side. Now, I don't think Russell Nelson would do that, but I would extend that invitation to any apostle, right? Or leader, doesn't matter. Stake presidents, bishops, whoever. This is the problem that we're going to have to overcome. Well, we don't because it's not our fault. <laughs> this is the issue for the Mormon sticker. Forget talking about it with you if you're not going to at least look at the historical record. We've got a lot more coming along this score. So anyway, yeah, I'm blabbing now, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you for the likes. Appreciate my great audience. Looks like you guys have been, hey, buddy boy, welcome. Trevor Luke, thanks for showing up, man. Good to see you, Huff Daddy. Yeah, Mark Crispin, good to see you. Elisa and Patty Cake, I've talked to you. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Trevor Luke, uh, saying it's good reasoning. It is because the mysteries, uh, I don't think Joseph Smith was necessarily wrong in trying to bring them out. And sure, none of I shouldn't say none. I should say there are some things that don't match between Joseph Smith and Masonry, and they don't match between Joseph Smith and the ancient mysteries, but that has nothing to do with true and false. That just means Joseph Smith was creatively adapting the mysteries, but that has been done for millennia. So Joseph Smith isn't such an odd man out. Why is the modern church trying to make it seem like he's the odd man out? Yeah. Like I said, today's Mormonism would truly excommunicate Joseph Smith. <laughs> isn't that crazy? That's wild. That's just crazy. But they would. I promise. So, Anyway, okay, uh, what have you guys been yelling about? <laughs> Most, oh, well, thank you, Mosia. Excellent episode. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, John. John, especially you, Ross Barsky. I appreciate you showing. My goodness, you stayed with me the whole time. Thank you. I normally go about an hour and a half. Yeah, sometimes I get up to two hours. Thank you. This is your first time. Honors to you, my friend. Please feel free to come back if you would. If you wouldn't mind, hit the like button for me. That helps my demographics. But uh, yeah, I, I hope it's been worth your time. I personally love this kind of stuff. So 
Uh, yeah. Reed Russell. Hey, good to see you, Reed. Thank you very much for showing up. Yeah, Trevor, me too, right? John e Easler? Yeah, Easler. Sorry, small print and my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. So I truly don't mean to mispronounce your name. If I do, I apologize. Not intentional. Lamb Chop? Oh, very good. Lashram32. Wow, there's a lot of new... I love this. You oh, you're very kind, Lashram. My goodness. I, I'm glad to see so many new names. I'm grateful that you find it worth your time. I promise I have a boatload more of information along all of these lines, the ancient mysteries, uh, more on Mormonism, more on Freemasonry, uh, more on very interesting ideas on visions, you know, truth, reality. I mean, these are all the big philosophical things, right? Well, I'm, I've been somewhat around the block a little bit, studying some of it, and I got some fun stuff, I think. And I'll be happy to share them in, in, uh, for the video. Oh, Paul Osborne. Yes, it was long. Yes, it was. True story. <laughs> ah, Issa Morris, welcome. Thank you for coming. Dan Vogel. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Dan Vogel says Joseph Smith knew about Masonic signs as early as when he was working on the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language in 1835. Now, that's interesting. See, stuff like that's worth pursuing, you know. That, that's, that's cool. That'd be fun to look at. Where can we find the legend of Enoch that you read from? Huff Daddy, yeah, look up uh, look up uh, Reed Durham. Is there any help for the widow's son? Oh, oh, you mean the actual legend? Uh, I'll look that up. I'll, I'll look into that and see. Hey, thank you, Trevor Luke, for showing up. Good night. I hope you have a good night. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Lamb Chop. She says he's, the commentary is most interesting. Time to put a cork in it. Laughing out loud. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I'm enjoying my audience, young man. <laughs> hey, by the way, I owe you a phone call. You and I are going to start conversing, pal. You've got information I would love to have. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah, you got to have a yeah, baby. You got to have the backyard professor. Yeah, baby. So there you go. Hey, Lorena, good to see you. Welcome. Oh, Heidi Christensen, good to see you. Thank you. And John Aisler, yeah, I think so. Yeah, baby. Mark Crespin imitating the backyard professor. Yeah, baby. Yeah, I'm overdoing it. Yeah, I got to shut up. I think Paul Osborne makes it yet again another good point. I love reading his stuff because he makes so many good points that I can't keep up with him. Him and Trevor Luke, uh, those guys are incredible. So anyway, okay, you guys, I'm going to close out. I will see. Hey, don't forget Wednesday night, Mormonism Live. Don't forget Tuesday night, I'll be on Gnostic Informant uh, if you want to come, uh, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Gnostic Informant is a very popular YouTube podcast videoer, and uh, he's invited me yet again to his show, and I'm going to show up. So I'm looking forward to seeing you there. I'll see you Wednesday night at Mormonism Live, and I will see you next Sunday night at 6 p.m. And remember, happy Father's Day, all you great dads in the world. 
I love y'all, but I'm going to go because I got to go to bed. I'm tired. <laughs> uh, I love doing this with you guys. You're awesome.